Hello and welcome to the Dive Deep, Climb High podcast. I'm Mel Luizu and together with my guests, we explore all different aspects of leadership in higher education. With inspiring stories, practical tips and a little bit of fishiness, this show will help you dive deep into the leader you are and climb high, unleashing your power and potential. Dive deep, climb high, can-do leadership in a world of can't. Before we get started, are you wanting to develop your leadership skills? Then why not join my six-month transformational leadership programme, which combines one-to-one coaching with live group sessions. To find out more, head over to my website, www.fishclimbtrees.co.uk or book a call with me using the Calendly link in the show notes. Together, we will dive deep and climb high. Today, we're going to be diving deep into the world of culture and change. My guest has spent much of his career working for an organisation that is loved by many in the UK, and I'm one of them. That business, of course, is John Lewis. Having worked the length and breadth of the UK in a variety of roles, including head of branch at John Lewis Aberdeen, my guest made the transition to higher education in 2018 when he joined the University of Glasgow as Executive Director of Commercial Services. A newly formed department, I can't wait to explore the journey that my guest and his team have been on. So without further ado, please welcome Robert Garnish. Hi, Robert. Hi, Mel. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. I can't wait to dive into this conversation. Change, culture, John Lewis. What more could we ask for? I I hope I won't disappoint. I'm sure you won't. So perhaps the best place to start would be to to give listeners a sort of summary of, of your career. And also, I'm really interested in your motivation behind moving from retail to higher education. Yeah, okay. So um, funnily enough, I was having this conversation with with somebody I'm mentoring just uh, earlier today. I left school um, and and took a gap year and and wasn't really sure where I was going to go or what I was going to do. And I found myself, having done my gap year, I worked in a a school in London. Uh, I found myself uh, up on the east coast of Scotland at the University of St Andrews studying English and French ostensibly. But um, the Scottish system enabling me to pick up a a third subject, I picked up the history of art. And actually, by the time I got to honours year, found that I was actually enjoying the history of art more than the French. Um, So I gave up the French and I did English and history of art as a a joint honours degree, which I loved. And to this day, I always say to people, when it comes to thinking about what you want to do, particularly in a university context, go and do something you're going to enjoy. Unless you particularly are heading down a vocational path, go and do something you'll enjoy because actually that's how you'll you'll achieve the best uh, degree you can. Um, and from there, you know, who knows, you can springboard into anything. And I joined the John Lewis Partnership as a graduate trainee, one of 16 in that intake year in 2000. 
And we came from a wide variety of backgrounds. I'd done English and history of art. One of my colleagues had done archaeology. One of my other colleagues had done social anthropology. We all came from a really mixed background. And I think what was really great was that as an institution, as a, a, a real kind of guardian um, back then of customer focus and, and leadership um, uh, training and development, the partnership saw people as significant assets and therefore what they came what they came with their background their knowledge their skills actually it didn't matter where it came from they could teach you the retail stuff they could teach you the front end stuff actually it was about you as an individual and you as a person and I loved my time there I, I don't think I'd have stayed 17 years if I hadn't done it is a great company to work for and I learned a huge amount but what was particularly powerful was the speed with which you were able to be rewarded for your development. And, and as uh, retail management is not unusual in offering reasonably senior levels of accountability at a relatively young age. And, and, and that's, that's not unusual. But, you know, within a year of having joined, I was running my own department. Another year later, I was running a department that was three times bigger than the previous one. And then another year later, I was the operations manager uh, on the selling floor for uh, an entire store in Norwich. And then, as you said in the introduction, I embarked on a bit of a tour of the country um, from, from Norwich to Southampton to Aberdeen to Manchester twice, um, down to head office for a while, and then down to Poole in Dorset, back up to York, and then uh, finally up to Aberdeen again, um, and loved it. Learned a huge amount. But in kind of late the late 2010s, you know, recognizing that retail was going through significant change and recognizing that in particular, the organization, which had, had performed really well through that kind of financial crash in 2008 and, and, and beyond, and had come out of that, you know, very strongly, actually the organization was starting to find things really tough. And, and having moved back to Scotland, we were very settled as a family. We'd had a second child. Um, and so really the options for me at that stage for a business which is headquartered in London were really to probably be away during the week working in London. And with a young child, actually, that just wasn't going to work. And having worked as anyone who's worked in retail or, or any kind of customer facing industry will know, having worked all the hours as needed, actually getting a bit of work life balance back was was pretty important. And so I wasn't actively looking for something different. But as often when you're not looking, things present themselves. And I was approached about the role at the university. I'd never thought about higher education, never given it a moment's thought. But the more time I spent both with the recruiter and immersing myself in what campus services, commercial services, that whole world looks like, the more I felt there was something I could bring and the more I felt that this was an opportunity to... Um, you know, to take a step sideways. It, it, don't get me wrong, taking on the role as, as exec director was a, was a promotion, um, but actually I saw it as a kind of a, a career. I've always, I talk a lot about career climbing frame rather than career ladder, and this was an opportunity to step sideways and to try my skills in a different space um, and, and found that hugely rewarding, fascinating and frustrating in equal measure but hugely rewarding and an opportunity to try and bring some of my learning, some of my kind of core skills um, and some of the tools and tips and techniques that I'd used in my retail career, bring those to bear in a, 
you know, in, in the overtly commercial part of the of the higher education landscape. Fantastic. And the team that you're you're now working with, that that was a new department, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. So so the services had existed. So the core parts of my role are accommodation services, um, catering and events, but that was two separate um, departments when I joined, hospitality services and conferences and events. Uh, so accommodation, catering and events, sport, print, retail, and uh, shortly after I joined the university nursery, that's children, not plants. And they had all existed within the university, but in disparate parts of the organisation. This was a conscious decision by Glasgow to bring these functions together into one place. Um, Perhaps we were a little bit behind the curve. Lots of other institutions had already done that. And this was with a real focus on trying to drive a better return for the amount of investment in both time and money that those services had. Um, and, And I think, you know, catering is a really good example. Within the first year, we saw some some change in personnel within the team um, and areas that perhaps hadn't seen a huge amount of change for some time, probably nearly 18, 18 years in, in catering. Actually, we brought these two areas together as one um, and gave us an opportunity to try and diversify the offer and try and bring it to bear that it would be more fit for purpose for an institution that was undergoing rapid growth and was about to embark on a major campus expansion programme. Uh, onto the, the the old hospital site next door. And so, obviously, you're new to higher education. Your department is newly formed. Mm. When you stepped into that role, what were your priorities? So I had exactly the same. This is where I, I, I absolutely drew on my previous experience. My immediate priorities were my team, bringing my senior team together, and beyond that, the sort of the next level down, the, the kind of extended leadership team. So the senior team back then was a, a team of four or five. The extended leadership team would have been about uh, 20, 25, something like that. So the important thing for me was bringing them together and enabling them to uh, start to shape the boundaries that we wanted to work within. But also for me to really immerse myself into the various different parts of my operation. It would have been very easy for me to just go and spend all my time in the gift shop. We have a, a really successful university uh, retail offer. Um, it's grown significantly over the course of the last 10 years, pre my time. And, and since we've shepherded it through the pandemic um, at a time when it, you know, it, it could well have, it's a, it's a separate trading subsidiary. So it could well have folded um, had, had we not shepherded that carefully. And it's back into really profitable growth going forward. I could have just focused all my time in that space because that was what I knew. I knew nothing about student accommodation. I knew a little bit about catering. I knew nothing about events. I knew a little bit about sport. And I knew nothing about print. So you could find yourself asking, so why the hell did they give you the job? But actually, I think what they recognized was that I would be able to facilitate bringing this group of people together. And I still remember we got the extended leadership team together. I joined in the February dealt with Beast from the East in the March, and then, uh, this was 2018, and then in the April, we pulled together that extended leadership team for three or four hours for the first time. And that was an opportunity for me to speak to them, to set out some kind of initial thoughts, um, to give them some perspective on my observations so far, but most importantly, to bring those people together. And I remember clear as day, nearly five years on, being in the room, 
as people, we, we put on a kind of breakfast for people beforehand. So people were kind of coming in, picking up the breakfast, coming into the room, finding a seat at the tables. And I remember somebody saying, oh, hi, I'm so-and-so, shaking somebody else's hand. And, and the other person saying, oh, yeah, I'm so-and-so. I think I know you. I mean, I think, I think we've been emailing each other for about 10 years. I can't believe we've never met before. And I just found it fascinating that in an organization which is large, you know, 8,000 or so staff, it's a, it's a big place. But that here was a group of people who'd actually worked quite closely on things in the past, but had never met each other. And this was before the pandemic, Zoom meetings, online meetings, working from anywhere. This is when everybody was on campus five days a week. So straight away, that told me that this was going to be a success, bringing people together. And we, uh, as part of that uh, exercise on that day, we'd asked everybody to identify their favorite piece of music uh, in advance. And we, during the session, we played all those favorite pieces of music and got people to say why it was their favorite and what it was that inspired them about that piece of music or why they loved it or why they enjoyed listening to it. And just by finding a way to unlock something outside of the workplace, it was a really good way of starting to get a handle on what motivated people and why they were there and what they felt uh, they, they wanted to do and gave us a really neat lead in in the coming months for us to think about what did we want to be famous for as a, as a commercial services team. So by, by getting stuck into the people first and understanding the, the, you know, where had people come from and what motivated them, that gave us the, the, the framework to kick on for the future. And you say that part of that was deciding what did you want to be famous for? So mm. what did you come up with as a team? Well, we, we spent quite a bit of time on this. And, and, and I remember thinking back that this was something that quite a number of the team weren't used to. There was a sense, I think, that you just did what you were told to do. You know, if you were running accommodation, you, you just service beds and, and, and provided them and managed the application process. And, but to me, there was a very clear sense that if we were coming together as a, as a commercial services team, and I remember in those early days, even using the word commercial was a bit of a swear word. I remember there were members of my team back then who really were uncomfortable with that. And I, 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 I worked to try and quash that fairly early on by saying, well, look, I appreciate you may not see us as commercial with a capital C. And bluntly, that's not what we're set up to be. But we provide services in exchange for money, whether it's external money or whether it's kind of internal wooden dollars. So services in exchange for money, kind of commercial. I mean, it, it kind of is what it says on the tin. We may not have called it that before, but you know that, that's what we are. So if we were going to come together with a core purpose, we needed to decide why we were there. And we used, uh, I, I suspect listeners will be familiar with, with Simon Sinek and some of his thinking around the golden circle and why organizations do what they do. You know, most people can say what they do. Most people can say how they do it. But very often people can't say why they do it. So we developed a why for commercial services. And after a lot of work, managed to distill that down into a sentence which was about delivering diverse, thoughtful, and engaging services, which enabled a world-class experience and delivered value for the university. The five key words or phrases are diverse, thoughtful, engaging, world-class, because the university has uh, a strap line about being world-changing, and value. And we very consciously use the word value because it could look in both directions. It could look in a financial direction. 
and it could also look in a reputational direction. And to this day, although we've tweaked and played around with the edges, that's still the kind of core of what we're aiming to deliver. Fantastic. So did that become your driving force for change over the period of time? Yes, I think it certainly gave us a, a, a bit of a North Star to focus on. And it, it made us think about where we could create um, new opportunities, where we could go after new opportunities. And we we certainly encouraged people to give stuff a go. So I think back to that first six months, we, we had a go at creating a sort of pop-up catering outlet in our sports building. Um, now, bottom line, before I go any further, it didn't work. We did it at the wrong time of year. And there were lots of things that we would have liked to have had in place, like a supply of running water rather than having to fill big containers with water to supply the coffee machines. But for me, it was a really exciting opportunity to take a dead space to try and create something and see how quickly we could get it up and running. And whilst it didn't succeed and it wasn't profitable and we we didn't maintain it, actually it was it was a really valuable exercise to go through. And and so we have always tried to spot opportunities, seize them and, and run after them. And I think I've only ever worked in one university, so I'm very conscious that I, I don't have um, experience across the sector. But my sense is that running hard and running fast at stuff is not something that, that the sector has done a lot of and has, has certainly not made a, its name from. So sometimes, and I can be guilty of this too, it's very easy to think, oh, no, we're, that's not going to work. We're not going to find a way to do that. But I am an eternal optimist, so I try very hard to encourage my own thinking and my, my team's thinking to say, well, look, let's give it a go. What's the worst that can happen? If it doesn't work, we'll stop it and we'll step back from it. And far better to have scratched the itch than to have wondered, I wonder what might have happened if we, if we tried that. So, yeah, that, that why has definitely given us a, a focus. And I think we've probably had to, uh, I said, we've, we've probably tweaked around with it a little bit. I think the, the pandemic probably prompted us to do that. And I think coming out the other side, there are different services within our overall portfolio that we would kind of push the pedal harder and, and or less hard on, depending on what it is we're, we're, we're trying to achieve. You know, in, in catering where we've seen such significant change, we did a big piece of organizational change. You know, delivering value, particularly financial value, has been a key driver there. When I joined, catering turned over probably about £3 million. And it generated a relatively small uh, five-figure sum in terms of contribution. So, you know, a lot of effort for not a lot of return. Um, and so really trying to ensure that we can continue to deliver variety and excitement and interest and feed and water people, but do it in a way which drives some financial value for the institution has been a real focus. On the accommodation side, uh, we're doing a lot of work at the minute to kind of grow our portfolio and think about how we can create additional capacity for students to, to stay with the university, particularly the, the, the city is quite capacity constrained. And so there we're putting a lot of thought into the kind of diversity and the thoughtful piece of the why. So, you know, what sort of accommodation do we need? It's not just power blocks of ensuite rooms. We need to think about family accommodation. We need to think about how we're going to meet the needs of future students, not just the short term 
need that we have now. So at different points and in different ways, I think that phrase gives us the the, the opportunity to to guide where we want to go. Absolutely. And if people are listening to this, and I'm sure there'll be a lot of people interested in the journey that you've been on, if you were to reflect back, what has been your biggest learning that you could share with people if they're about to embark on a similar journey? I mean, there's genuinely has been lots. I am going to answer the question. There has been a lot. I think one of the things that particularly struck me when I joined was, and of course, you having been in, a, in another organization for a long period of time, it's very easy to take things for granted, particularly if that, you know, let's be honest, I'm I'm 45, I've only ever worked for two organizations. So you're you're slightly conditioned by that. I really struggled when I first joined because there just wasn't the same clarity and structure of empowered line management and accountability within HE. It felt very disparate. And I remember talking to some of the extended team and you know, people say, I don't even know who my line manager is. I mean, that just blew my mind because I've always viewed your line manager as the single most important person you know at work and the single most important person you have a relationship with. So for me, getting my head around the fact that there were people in my extended world who didn't know who the line manager was. And I was thinking, well, who do you go to to book time off? Who do you go to when you're not very well? Who do you go to when you're going through a really difficult time and you need some support, you know, all of these things that kind of blew my mind. So we've worked really hard and we're definitely not there yet. It's, it's a long journey, but we've worked really hard in my directorate to encourage people to be clear on their place within the bigger team that they're part of, to understand the role that they play and kind of where it fits in and to make use of their relationships with their line managers and those around them. I suspect anybody listening to this who's worked in HE will be familiar with, um, you know, I remember when I joined, um, people would, would contact me and say, can I talk to you about the price of bacon rolls in the such and such cafe? And I'd be like, well, you can, yeah, of course. But one, I'm not the person who can do anything about that. And B, have you had a conversation with Bob or Rachel or whoever it is that runs that bit of, because actually they can solve this for you. So this work to try and get people to understand where they sit and where they fit into that overarching kind of matrix of people is really key because otherwise you get the people who are doing a lot of the work and involved on the ground kind of bouncing straight to the top all the time. And you get this disenfranchised group in the middle um, often sort of junior to middle managers and leaders who are there to fulfill that that role and to support these people and to, to manage what they're doing, the task and to lead the people, but just being disenfranchised because people just bounce straight to the top. So that apparent kind of escalation route within HE, I've worked really hard to try and devolve things down to the, to, to the right level so that the people who actually have got the knowledge and the skill and the experience can answer the question in the right way. Now, I find that quite hard at times because I am a very hands-on operational leader. I spent 18 years in, in shops. And, you know, if you talk to my old team in John Lewis, they would tell you I was never happier than standing on the till, serving people and putting money in the drawer. That's kind of where the rubber hits the road. 
but um, knowing how best to use the people around you to deliver the things that need to be done has been key. So really getting your head round, back to your question about, you know, the advice that you would give, the lessons that, that I've learned, really spending some time on helping people to understand where they fit in to the overarching plan, to the overarching goals, and, and helping them to understand how best to use and manage those relationships and connections between them, um, I think is, is critical because you'll ultimately get more done as a result. I don't think there's a university in the land that doesn't experience what you've just described there and, and the frustrations that that brings a team. And so how, because it's it's very difficult to do because it is an ingrained culture, I think. I think within the hierarchy that most organisations have and, and the structures, and it's just a way that, you know, if I'm not happy, then I go straight to the top, even though there's lots and lots of layers in between that. Mm. so I'm interested how did the people react that were coming to you but also how did your team react in sort of getting that it was like you said earlier on talking about empowered leadership you were demonstrating Mm. that you are empowering them how did that go down mixed I would say I mean I think there were those who got it straight away and actually I think were quite relieved because I think they felt it was something that had been missing I think for others, we've been on a journey and there's been, you know, full credit to the university. There's been a, a significant investment in some development courses around management management fundamentals and, and properly supporting people as they take these first steps on the leadership journey. In fact, the very fact that, you know, somebody who leads a directorate, which is not core to the university's aims and ambitions, I don't teach, I don't do research, I'm not core to the university. The very fact that I've been asked to support leadership development programs within the institution and to talk about my experience, I think, tells you that the university recognises there's there's work to be done here. Um, but it is, I think, through providing tangible examples that you get people on board, that you you help people, and by, by linking people up. For me, one of the biggest parts of leadership is about collaboration. We talk about leaders and, and the leader, the overarching leader, this, this idea of you know, somebody who's there to kind of guide and, and, and direct. And, you know, at times that can be a pretty lonely place to be. But what makes it less lonely is recognising that you get stuff done by collaborating with other people. It's one of the things that fascinates me about the dysfunctional nature of our political environment in the UK just now. Everything is is so clearly defined down party political lines that any sense of collaboration or, you know, working with the enemy is just dismissed. And yet nobody in history has ever got anything done in a way that lasts without collaborating with other people. So networking and really working hard to engage multiple stakeholders in the right way is a critical part of of that in HE. Um, Finding the right stakeholders is key because what you do find sometimes is Everybody has a view. When it came to making changes in catering, everyone's a caterer. Everybody knows the answer to the question, which is the best sandwich to sell. So you have to be careful about how you shape that influence and you shape that involvement and input. But it's important you do it um, to, to, to get you the best outcomes. Yeah, 
I love that. And collaboration absolutely is key. So I know that you and you mentioned it there that you have been part of the aspiring leaders program that they're running mm. at the university. Tell me a little bit more about that. So that's been really interesting because because this is a cross institutional group of people. There's two cohorts actually at the moment um, who are from professional services, who are newly appointed professors, newly appointed heads of professional services, all sorts of roles. And I've specifically been involved in supporting a particular module around culture and complexity. And that has been really interesting to draw not only on my previous experience, but also to try and refresh that and bring that to mind in relation to the institution. So in talking about complexity, I've um, used my experience of opening a new shop, John Lewis York, um, uh, which we opened from scratch in, in 2014. I'm from Durham originally, but I grew up in Yorkshire. So opening the shop in York was a bit of a hometown journey for me. Um, and, and to this date, probably the proudest moment in my career on, on opening day, standing in front of 400 newly recruited partners and assorted press and fairly senior managers from within the business. But the complexity of opening a new shop, recruiting 400 new people from scratch, embodying them with the culture of the organization, helping them understand what they do on day one, helping them understand the different scenarios they might be faced with, and then giving some examples of, of the kind of complexities that you deal with in those scenarios that can feel quite small, um, but actually in reality can be really quite important. So I talked to this group about four things that we encountered. Um, one, uh, the shop was hugely successful from day one and we didn't have enough toilets. Now, the reality was we did have enough toilets because you don't build a shop for opening day. You build a shop for, you know, longevity. But we had to manage kind of expectation around around that. We had a, a large building and the kind of standard format closed down procedure, setting the alarm and locking the doors, didn't give us enough time to clear the building. So we had to come up with a new way of doing that. Um, we had a different catering model in our cafe. And there were no fryers. There was, there was no frying facilities. So we were serving oven chips. That's all fine and well, not a problem, until you have long queues uh, on opening day and in the first six weeks. And what's the worst thing about oven chips? They lose their heat really quickly. So you've got long queues, people picking up stuff on their tray, they get to the seat, it's gone cold. You know, we never imagined we'd have to deal with that. But here was a really immediate problem that presented itself. And lastly, car parking. The site was an out-of-town site. It had a four-hour parking limit. People come to John Lewis, M&S, and Next to shop for four, five, six, seven hours. They want to spend a whole day. So a site that has a four-hour parking limit, and people didn't expect that, and therefore didn't expect a ticket on the windscreen, which was nothing to do with John Lewis. It was to do with the site management. But you know, how do you manage? So just helping them to understand that whether they're in an academic school, whether they're in a professional service, these small things can cause challenges and can have different um, degrees of disruption and complexity, but you have to find a way to manage it. And how I then used the experience to translate into a, an HE-specific example was talking to them about the management of COVID outbreaks in student residences. And I show a couple of maps that are five days apart. One map, um, I think, from at the 18th of September 2020, and it shows a, a, our 1,200-bed site and it shows uh, four red dots, four confirmed cases of COVID, and two yellow dots, two suspected cases. And then the next map is the same site six days later, 
and we've got something like 395 cases, just multiple red dots everywhere. And that sense that complexity can come out of nowhere and whether you can plan around it, whether you can be um, strategic about dealing with it, sometimes you just have to deal in the moment and you have to use your skill to just try and get some clarity and some clear thought about what you can control and what you can't control. So it's been great. And, and, and seeing those cohorts respond and, and I think for a few of them, some real penny drop moments mm. around what this means in their, in their new role or the space that they find themselves operating is, it's always really inspiring to think that your own experience, which is, you know, I just do my job. I just, I, I live it and breathe it, but I do it and I do it the way I do it because I think it's the right way to do it. But knowing that some of your own experience and some of your own um, mistakes can help shape and inform others' development is really satisfying, really satisfying. Absolutely. And, and they're great examples. And I think what I take from that and what I've taken from our, our discussion is that culture change is huge. It, it's a long journey. There's no, there's no shortcut. Yeah. But actually, it is. the parts of it that can impact that can be the minutiae and so it's almost as a leader having that view on the end goal that vision where you want to go understanding your why but also understanding how that why impacts the little things and that we can't Mm. ignore them because they then become big things Mm. yeah absolutely so what have you you've shared many of them but what example can you give us of when you've had to dive deep and what impact that had on you? I mean, I think in the early days, um, I did a lot of diving deep, and that was about upskilling myself and, and really kind of closing that technical competence gap, the knowledge of the various different services that I was responsible for. Um, but I think probably the one that, that flows most neatly from what we've talked about already is around managing the conversations with people who, regardless of, of, of whether my team are predominantly in an academic environment or not, and of course they're not, they're in the professional services space, but they're operating in against an academic backdrop. There is that real sense sometimes that things are either right or wrong, black or white, yes or no, and that whatever you say, somebody else will construct an argument. Somebody said to me when I first joined he they said all you have to remember is that for all the right reasons academics are trained to argue that's their job and so that's what they will do so for me i think the bit i've had to work hardest on is helping my team to recognize that it's okay for there to be a sense of uncomfortableness about things that You don't have to move everything that's currently wrong to being right, that you don't have to make everything that's black, white, that actually it's okay to be a little bit uncomfortable about things. Um, And and that, you know, leadership in higher education is the same as leadership anywhere. A big part of it is about managing grayness, managing that stuff in the middle. And I think helping my team to, to do that and and also kind of kind of chucking that that nugget to other teams to other people um, ha, has been tough at times because to me it's it's really obvious to me it's really obvious that 
you know, it's it's not always this or that. It's something in the middle. And actually, if something in the middle is the pragmatic solution, well, I'm happy to trade off the bit that I'm not getting. How can I help you recognize that you might need to trade off the bit you're not you're not getting? So that's probably the thing I've spent most time really getting to grips with um, and, and supporting those difficult conversations to, to deliver that. Your words just made me chuckle because I remember one of the light bulb moments I had, in spite of the fact that my dad is an academic, was when I was told, actually, it's in an academic's DNA to question. And I think Mm -hmm. sometimes when you get to the committees, the meetings, and they are questioning you, you can feel that it's your own personal ability that's being challenged, but actually mm, absolutely. it's not. And when you can disassociate yourself from that and recognise that they're just curious individuals, mm. it takes the pressure off. So mm. I absolutely agree, and I love that example. In the private sector, you know, it, particularly in a, in a commercial organisation, you, you have to do a lot that's based around cost to deliver, bottom line, you know, um, private sector businesses would go out of business very quickly if they didn't have half an eye on the numbers. But actually, as an experienced senior leader, much of what you do day in, day out does become about instincts and gut. And yes, you almost certainly can back those things up if you need to. But sometimes you do just need to trust your gut and go with it. And actually, if your experience and your knowledge doesn't count for that, then actually, what, what have I been employed for? I do remember somebody saying to me in the first six months, this was in relation to, to something to do with, with the gift shop. Uh, somebody said to me, ah, oh, so will you, will you be employing a consultant? Will you be bringing in a consultant to advise you about that? I kind of went, why would I do that? What, what have you employed me for? If you, you know, I mean, I've, I've literally got that background. You know, yes, if there's some stuff I need to know, or this stuff I'm, I'm not aware of and I want to get an objective opinion, yeah, of course you might think about getting some external input. But actually... In employing me and in me employing some of the people I've brought in, you know, I've brought them in from the sectors that they are skilled in to work in an HE environment. It it doesn't really matter that they're in HE versus being anywhere else. They're still a retailer or a caterer or uh, an accommodation expert. So actually, we should trust and and empower them to make the right decisions and, and do the right thing. Yeah, as we do our academics. Absolutely. And their areas of specialism. Indeed. Indeed. So we've dived deep. When have you felt like a fish that climbed a tree? I think the, and and we're still on the journey, so I've maybe got a few more branches to climb. But one of the things that we set out to do in the very early days was to reshape and prepare our catering operation for the future, and in particular for the expansion into the former hospital site um, adjacent. So there are a number of new buildings being built. The original intention was to contract the catering in those buildings out to third parties. But my boss and I, I think, felt that there was another, you know, there was another way. And so he has championed and and, and we've sought to deliver setting up a catering subsidiary. Again, we're not unusual in that regard. Other institutions have done it many years ago. Um, we already had one operating our, our gift shop, but we didn't have it in the catering space. Now, that was a journey we started in 2018. We didn't, partly because of the pandemic, partly because of some delays to the project, we didn't actually open the doors of our first outlet until 2021, April 2021. And I would say that was a a moment when, 
through all the journey of what are the tax implications of this? Do we pay input VAT on that? Is there a how do we manage the governance around that? What does that mean in terms of what we have to submit to the auditors? Oh, okay, we're not. A, are we a going concern because we haven't been able to open yet because of the pandemic? So, an area where you know I've run businesses, I've worked in 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 in, in organisations, I've I've run a business unit many times, but setting something up from scratch. Uh, with a project manager, we were both skilled retailers and my colleague was a, a skilled caterer. We didn't know what we were doing. There was a bit of blind leading the blind there. But you know what? When we opened the doors and when we look back now at how we've set that business up and we have fledgling policies and we're working to, to develop trade union recognition and you know some of the other things which I think we can be really proud of and we've got some features within that subsidiary company which are different so we we uh, are set up in a way that has employees on our board of directors um, we're set up in a way that should mean we can share some of the profit we generate with our employees um, th there are things about that that will I genuinely believe will deliver real success in the future it's still early days we're still kind of post pandemic coming out the other side sussing out the market getting some of these operations open but the moment we opened those doors and, and we were taking money through the till that was being operated through through our subsidiary employees, that was a real moment where I thought, well, if you told me I was going to do that three years ago, I would never have believed you. Um, there have been lots, but but that's probably the one that, that stands out. Becoming a bit of an expert on student accommodation is probably another. I would never have imagined that was going to be the bulk of my time. Um, but when you find yourself on a, a, a Zoom call with Scottish government officials being asked for input and advice on COVID legislation and what they should and shouldn't do about this and that and what should we do about this, you find yourself thinking, okay, this is quite important stuff and it's great to be able to bring our experience and our knowledge to bear um, and hopefully shape things for the better in the future. I love both those examples because it shows that when you have the motivation, you can climb whatever tree, no matter what knowledge you've got at the beginning. Yeah. And I just have to ask, so the way that you've set up the subsidiary company and the fact that you're looking that profits will go back to the employees, mm. inspired by your time at John Lewis? <laughs> I would be lying if I said it wasn't. And do you know what? I'm, I'm really confident we will get there with it. One of the advantages of setting up catering subsidiary has been that the things that we've brought in that space we've kind of retrofitted back into our retail subsidiary which as i say predates it but was a much smaller operation um, and although we weren't able to pay a bonus in our catering subsidiary this last year unfortunately we didn't generate sufficient because of the, the impact of the christmas a year ago the kind of omicron closures etc we were able to pay a bonus in the retail subsidiary in july this year um, so every employee got got a share of the profit over and above what we've been budgeted to take and that's really satisfying because actually that is true reward for the impact and the influence that those people have those people have had so yeah what goes around comes around I love that and hopefully you'll be an inspiration for many in the sector because I I think that's the way to go I love it love it love it so I am absolutely convinced that people will want to reach out get in touch talk to you find out more What's the best way for them to do that? I'm always delighted to make connections and, and speak to whoever would like to get in touch. So you can find me on Twitter. And I think you'll put the, the relevant links in the, the, the podcast notes. 
Um, you'll find me on Twitter and on LinkedIn um, and on Instagram. I realize two of those are not specifically HE related. The LinkedIn one is probably the one that we talk about most in the business space. But actually, for me, the last year has been a real journey in terms of how I balance the intense focus at key times of the year that, that, that is required. And in particular, some of the challenges we've experienced with accommodation. Um, and so I have shared quite a lot about how I manage myself outside of of work and the importance of of space. When I'm not at work, I'm often to be found either out running. I was a, a COVID runner, never done it before, now do it kind of intermittently. But I've also this year taken up getting out and about walking in in the Scottish landscape. We're really fortunate to live where we do and to have so many beautiful landscapes on our doorstep. So whether you just want to look at nice pictures of mountains and lochs or whether you want to, to engage in, in other ways or whether you want to come and visit us in, in Glasgow, you'll also find me at robert.garnish at glasgow.ac.uk. Um, we're hosting the Cubo Conference in July this year. Really delighted to be welcoming people to the city. So you can come and join us there or, or get in touch through one of those other means and love to hear from you. Fantastic. I will, of course, put all those links in the show notes so that whatever people want to find out, they will be able to do so. It just leaves me to say thank you so much for the conversation. Well, thank it, you. It's so interesting. I've, I've loved chatting to you. What final words of wisdom would you like to leave people with today? I think you touched on it just a moment ago. Wherever you are, whoever you are, whatever you've done, there are always transferable skills. There are always things you can take with you to deliver in other spaces. And I fully expect that at some point I'll move on from this role. Um, and when I do, the job won't be finished, but it will definitely be in a better state than it was when I took it over. And it will be ready to be carried forward to the next stage. So if you harness your passion and you're prepared to, to help others and to lead by example, and in particular to revel in the grey then there's no reason why you you can't make a success and climb some trees along the way thank you for listening to this week's episode of the dive deep climb high podcast with me mel luizu to help build our community of leadership listeners please leave me an apple podcast five-star review remember our fishy adventure doesn't have to end here connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram and Twitter. Links are in the show notes. Dive deep, climb high, can do leadership in a world of can't.